Hey, good morning, church. Come on, let's go ahead and stand to our feet. It is a gift and a joy to be able to celebrate the reigning of our Savior, that even as other nations fall, our God's kingdom will never, ever fall. Amen? Come on, let's put our hands together. Let's raise our voices to our one and only King this morning. Your kingdom has no end. 
raise our voices to sing that again. And don't praise the name. What a great song to draw us in as we enter into this time of communion. As we come before the Lord's table this morning, I'm going to invite you to reflect back on some of the words that we just sang. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. So while we remember his body and his blood that were poured out for us, we also rejoice. Later in the song, it says, On the third day at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Someday, we also will rise with the saints, transfixed on the face of Jesus forevermore. What a wonderful thing that we get to look forward to through the promise of the gospel. So we practice, commu I'm sorry, we practice communion out of obedience to Christ's commands. If you are here today and you've made that confession of faith, we invite you to join with us in taking of the elements. As we pre prepare to take these elements, would you take a moment, reflect, confess sin, reflect on the face of Jesus that we someday will be in the presence of in his glory, and then in a few moments we'll take together. First Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And it continues, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we reflect back and remember what you did on the cross in your death, Father, I pray that that is something we will never forget. But we also now, as we eagerly wait and are anticipating being with you in glory, with our gaze transfixed on your face, Father, I pray that we will continually praise, that we will lift your name high, that we will rejoice in who you are and what you have done for us. So thank you, Father. We want to keep this, this spirit, this focus on Christ and worship on him. And as we do that, we'll move into a time where we remind you that one of the ways we worship is through our giving, is through sacrificing of our time and our person, but also through our finances. So there will be different ways on the screen that show how you can be doing that. We'd like to introduce a new song this morning, and this song is inspired by this incredible story from Second Chronicles. I just want to draw our attention to it. In Second Chronicles, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, are surrounded by an army of different tribes that want to come against them and kill them. And they are rightfully, I'd say, pretty stressed about this. And they're sitting there, they're thinking, God, what are we supposed to do? so that we can just survive. I mean, tomorrow we are going to die if we don't do something. And I love what God says to his people in this. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15, he says, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not even be discouraged by this great army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. For the battle is not yours, but God's. The Israelites were focused on what are we supposed to do? How can God help us out here? How can we do 90%? And then can you show up and do the last 10% for us so that we can pull this off? Because we can't do it alone. I think they knew that. They were looking for what to do, but instead God says to them in verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. So what do the people of God do? They wake up the next morning and they don't prepare for battle. They don't prepare for war. They don't prepare to do stuff because that's not what God had called them to do. Instead, they wake up the next morning and they appoint singers. They appoint worshipers to go before this army, this army of people with swords and armor ready to kill them. And they send the singers out. It says, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army. And they're not singing songs to hype themselves up. They're not singing, we will rock you. <laughs> they say, they go before the army and they sing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And this is what I love in verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the army. Church, I think that mindset is something that I fall into so much where I wake up in the morning and I say, all right, God, I know I can't do this alone, but I think I can probably pull off 90%. God, what is my task? What am I supposed to do here? I'll pull it off. I'll give my 90%. God, please show up and do the final 10% so that this works. But here we see God's words to us where he says, the battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. So I think that's an invitation for us. You know, some of the trials we're facing might be 
as bad as people outside of our front door trying to kill us. They might feel that way. They might be less. Whatever it is, God's word for us is that the battle, whatever we're facing, belongs to God. And when we sing and we praise him and we put the focus where it's supposed to be, that has power. And we can sit back and watch what God wants to do in our life. So church, let's stand together. I just want to teach you this. Stan, I want to show you this course once. I'll invite you to sing it with me. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees With my hands lifted high Oh God, the battle belongs to you And every fear I lay at your feet And I'll sing through the night Oh God, the battle belongs to you Sing that with me. So when I fight. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet. And I'll sing through the night. Oh God, the battle belongs to you.
stand against the power of our God. So God, this morning we pray that you would remind us that you are the one in control. That you don't need us to meet you halfway on the things that you've called us to do. But God, help us to walk in your will. To let you work through us. Lord, this morning we come together and we remember your love for us and how you have shared salvation, your body broken for us. God, draw us closer to you. Remind us of your love. Remind us of your power. Remind us that the battle belongs to you and you alone. God, work in this place and work in our hearts. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat.
25 years ago, I got married to this incredible woman that sits up front. And as part of our preparing for marriage, we did what everybody else does. We do a registry. And on that registry, we put down a scale, that which would weigh yourself. Now, at that point in time, I wasn't worried about that a whole lot, but it seemed like a fun thing to do, especially when they give you a gun, you can start putting on the UPC codes and triggering, and I just got trigger happy. I enjoyed that very much, saying, because I'm not spending the money, somebody else gets to do it for us. And indeed, we got the scale. That thing is 25 years old, and recently I got on it and was very alarmed. And then I was like, oh, something must not be calibrated correctly. I bent over. It's like, oh, it's starting at five pounds. So I got five pounds added. So then I fixed it, and it only adjusted me by one pound, which tells me our scale is probably getting a little old. It's been beat up. It's gone through many moves. It's probably not able to give me an accurate sense of my weight. And so the only way to get the correct weight would basically to be to ditch it. Because personally, I do not know how to fix that which is broken in that scale. I can make an adjustment, that little spin wheel that's on the back, but that only gets me so far. I can't fix the ultimate problem. In the same way, we are trying to do life with God, and it's very often that we think that if there is a, an intent between us and God, well, we can fix it if there's something that's not quite right. And so we put it into our own hands and, and kind of create a checklist of, well, this is what we think God wants. The reality is, is that we're only making adjustments. We're not fixing the calibration problem. We need the master designer. In the same way that scale can only be fixed by the ones that actually designed it, I myself cannot fix me. That is God's work, and that's something that I rely upon. And so as we are in this series, again, what inspired it is that we have seen that over the last year, society is in need of an adjustment. But I believe it begins with the church. You know, we can point our fingers and say, you know, there's a lot of division in society. There's a lot of animosity and there's a lot of anger and so on. Um, but the sad thing is, is, is it any different within the fellowship of believers. In many cases it is different, but in some cases it is not. And, the, and we could go at it and say, you know, here's the five-step process to becoming right with God and having a better attitude. But in reality, the, the opportunity for that to be truly effective is minimal. It really requires the work of God by His Spirit to recalibrate us, to be aligned more with Him. And that's why we are working with Galatians chapter 5, and we're looking at the text where it talks about there are certain things that are fruit or byproducts of, of, of when somebody's life is being lived according to the Spirit. And so in Galatians chapter 5, we'll continue our series with the fruit of the Spirit, recalibrating according to God's directive. And so in this, we are acknowledging that when you list the fruits of the Spirit, it's not a punch list by which you check. The context is, is that those are just simply the results of a life lived by the Spirit. 
And so that's where our focus is over the next several weeks. And we're looking at then how that fruit derives from the work of the Spirit in us. And so today we're looking at the term love. And so let's begin by reading in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Because here's the thing. As it began with, we're called to be free. But true in their day, they were using their freedom as a license to do whatever they wanted. They used their freedom as a license to self-indulge. And as a result, when you self-indulge, you become addicted to it. And when you're addicted to something, when somebody begins to tap at it or, or push at it, we become defensive. We become irate. And that's where we become, as it describes here, where we literally begin to destroy one another by our spirit and our attitudes. You see, we are called to live according to the spirit. And that's why when we look at the fruits of the spirit here, it begins with the term love. He says, again, brothers and sisters, you are called to be free. Do not use that as a license to do whatever you want, but rather serve one another humbly in love. So the freedom that God gives, see, prior to Jesus Christ coming, all we had was the law. And the law simply told us the boundaries, if you will, of how to do life. It pointed to the holiness of God by showing the things that were not holy. And so it was a guide, but it didn't in of itself create a relationship between us and God. That happens through Jesus Christ and what he did. But when we receive that gift that Jesus offers through his own uh, death and resurrection, many brothers and sisters will use it then as a license. Like, I am no longer required to live by the law. I am forgiven. My past sins are forgiven. My current sins are forgiven. My future sins are forgiven. So therefore, I don't have to worry about what I do. I can presume upon the forgiveness of God. But in reality, what he's saying is that this freedom is given to us so that it gives us opportunity to humbly serve each other. So love then becomes the true scale of someone who's aligned with the heart of God. It really is. Love is the true scale of one whose heart is aligned with the heart of God. That person is not going to see their freedom as a license to do whatever they want. No, they're going to see their freedom as an opportunity to truly serve each other in love. And love then becomes the measure of both the law and our freedom as being used well. The law is intended to give us a sense of guardrail so that we can then live freely within that and that freedom is then opportunity to do life with other people, and in particular, life with God. But here's the problem. Because you and I, I'm assuming most of us here in this room, have grown up in the United States, we are shaped by our culture, our understanding of love is flawed. 
Our understanding of true love as what's being spoken of here is flawed. What do I mean? Well, let me kind of bring you to the summer of 88, 1988 that is, where I was going into my senior year of high school, and I call this the summer of misfound love. The reason why is that that summer began where I was on a tour with a music group that I was a part of, and we were going and singing in different places and, and doing performances and so on. And while we were at this one town, we were going to be there for almost an entire week, uh, singing at different churches and so on. And while there, I met a girl. This girl really caught my eye. We really connected. She came to every one of our performances. And by the end of the week, I thought love was budding. And so I invited her to go to camp with me, which was in about three weeks after that. So she decided to do that. So she went to camp. And on the first day of camp, I kind of hit that place where it's like, I wanted to move on. So I told her, I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not feeling what I thought I was feeling a few days ago. And that poor girl didn't know anybody at this camp. She went because I invited her. And I moved on on day one. By Thursday at camp, I, there was a new girl that I met. And love was budding. And I thought this girl was something else. And she was from where I was from, from the Kansas City, Kansas side of things. And so I invited her. I said, hey, I have tickets to a Kansas City Royals baseball game next week. Do you want to go? And you can bring a friend if you wish. So we go to that game. And, and her appreciation for baseball wasn't as high as mine. And it just wasn't connecting. And, and so, you know, I kind of got to that place that, like, you know, i just not ready for a relationship right now. And so I told her that, and, you know, she got tears and didn't understand why. And, and that's kind of, like, where it landed. And two weeks later, I met another girl. And things were abutting. And I thought I was in love again, and things were going quite well until she went back to college. And, uh, and I'm still in my senior year of high school and going into that last year. And, and so I, I sent her saying, I think we should break up. And she's like, well, can you help me understand why? And I just said, well, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> All right, own it. How many of you have said one of those three phrases in a breakup? Yep, there's some of you that are being honest. The rest of you, maybe not so much. The point is, those three phrases are actually very common in breakups. They also happen to be three of the top ten reasons given when saying to a spouse that they want to get a divorce. So I'm talking about 17-year-old stupid love that did not know what love really was. But yet, we've, Im we've immatured ourselves to such a place that our marriages are breaking apart with the same breakup lines that we use when we're in middle school and high school. I think the reality is, is that we've lost the true meaning of what love is all about. That we would use those phrases. Our feelings have changed. I've matured beyond where I was. I'm a different person now. And then to say things like, 
uh, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not ready for a relationship. It's not you, it's me. You see, love, true love, as God defines, goes way beyond how one feels. The love we're talking about today is not about feelings alone. It connects to feelings, sure. But in and of itself, love is not a feeling. It goes beyond to a greater resolve that's deeper than that. Which is why we must turn, and many of you know this, what is the love chapter in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to turn there. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to the left and just a little bit. It's not very far to 1 Corinthians 13. But I want us to read with a different lens. As we read what love is and what love is not, I want you to ask yourself a question. Is what it's talking about a feeling? Or is it something deeper than that? So here we go. Verses 4 to 7, and then we'll go back up and read verses 1 to 3 here in a moment. So starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rather rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. So let me stop there before going up to verses 1 to 3. So it gives you a list of things it is not or does not do. First of all, it doesn't envy. In other words, always looking out is like, I wish what they, I had what they had. Or I wish I was them. Or I w- wish that they, they could see everything that I am, but they look elsewhere for, for respect. Love does not do that. Love also does not boast in itself. It's very interesting as a teenage guy, whenever we would date a girl, we often treated her like a trophy. And that we would talk about her features and how she looked and, or maybe her laugh, but it wasn't very substantive beyond that. Love doesn't boast like that. Love isn't also prideful in like how we look together. Love isn't also something rooted in what it makes me feel, as pride is always self-serving. It's not about how I feel that when I look at that person and say, yeah, I love them because of what they do for me. Love doesn't dishonor other people. It's considerate. It doesn't seek self as the primary motivation It considers the other person in all actions towards them and around them. Love also doesn't get angry easily. Love does not also keep a record of wrongs and throw it in their face. Love does not enjoy when evil triumphs or when evil's at play. But rather, it rejoices when truth happens. It celebrates truth. 
I mean, think about how many times marriages get to this place and there's something broken and one of the spouses tries to identify the issue, but the other reacts as if that was a harsh thing to say. When they're trying to figure out what's at the root cause of why we're not doing well as a couple. Sometimes truth hurts. And love does not withhold it when there is a need to find some kind of healing or fix in the relationship. So celebrate when something truthful or when a spouse or a friend has the courage to tell you something that will help the relationship improve. Love will celebrate that. Pride gets defensive and dismisses such a courageous statement. It goes on to say that love is in a way that is significant. It's always this. It's, it's never not going to be this, in other words. So when it says, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. When it says love always protects, it's not about protecting you. Sometimes it comes at the cost of you when you protect another. Love will also then go to the place of hope. It doesn't operate with hopelessness. Because it's out of hopelessness that you begin to think such things as, I'm falling out of love. Or I'm not feeling it anymore. Hope drives through the hard times it perseveres as it says love will always persevere if you're beginning to back out of truly helping another person whether it be a friend a family member a spouse if you're backing out and you're not sticking with them when they're going through the hard things then you're more about yourself and not persevering in the trial it's not built on love how often do we claim to have faith with God, but as soon as it gets difficult, all of a sudden, we charge God with being guilty of letting this happen to us. We become hopeless, we become angry, and we begin to blame. Fortunately, God is merciful, because I've done that multiple times in my life, towards God when things get difficult. But God is merciful, and he is gracious, and he does love. He always trusts in his end game with us. He is always hopeful with us. And he will persevere with us when we are holding our fist up to him saying, I don't believe you enough to give you my life and entrust you with the leadership of what I do. See, love on God's part never fails. So let's bring this into relationship with God. By reading verses 1 to 3. Because it's talking about things that would be more on the spiritual side. Verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship, that I, may be, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now this is quite the list. If you know anything about churches, there's 
many different personalities within the church. In fact, you can even figure it out by all the Pauline epistles. I mean, look at the church of Galatia that we, we've, we're in right now. I mean, that church was very caught up with legalism and the law. And so Paul is talking to things in regards to that to help them become more about the spirit and less about rule. Then he talks to the church at Corinth, which happens to be a little bit more charismatic. And for them, he's like, okay, I appreciate you love the spirit, but there needs to be order. And so he gives guardrails by how they can gather together. Then there's the church of Philippi that apparently was under some great pressure that he tells them, don't lose your focus. Stay focused on God. He will give you the strength. But the crown jewel is the church of Ephesus. The crown jewel is the church of Ephesus. as it, it is, It's affirmed for so many things. So many things. But in the end of the day, it's still about love. And with the church at Corinth, he's saying, you know, you might be practicing these charismatic things like speaking in tongues or, or speaking prophecies. But if you're speaking those things and you're not doing it out of the motivation of love for God, it means nothing. You're just making noise. It's just noise to him. He even brings up this, this statement from, from Jesus himself. Jesus saying, well, if you have a faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And Paul says, if you have faith that moved a mountain, but it did not have love as its motivation, it gained you nothing before God. Gained you nothing. It was just about you. Asking for something that will benefit you. Had nothing to do with about something that would show off God. So to whose pleasure would you be doing these things, prophesying or speaking a tongue or ministering in the name of God? What would you be doing it for if it wasn't for love? Is it about your own pleasure? Or let's bring it to what is very strong within the county of Lancaster. We're known as being one of the most generous counties in the United States. We give more to charitable uh, foundations than any other county in the United States per capita. Interesting, isn't it? But yet it says, you could give all you possess to the poor. And you could even give up of your body and say, I'm willing to even give up all my rights. I mean, suffer for you. But if it's not rooted in love, even giving such great, giving of yourself, giving of your money completely, if it's not out of love, you've gained nothing with God. Gain nothing. I mean, if anything, we're kind of doing this. If, if it's not out of love, then it must be out of, I'm trying to impress God. I mean, are you expecting because we created this new idea in our culture that you want a participation trophy? No, God could care less about trophies. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your admiration. He wants your love. And then yes, out of that, much will be accomplished. But we don't do those things for self-gain or for checking a box before God. I brought up the church of Ephesus for a, for a purpose. 
This fall, we're going to be teaching through the book of Ephesians. It is known as being the healthiest church that you can esteem. To which I would like to say there's many qualities about the church of Ephesus that I would say, I think LEFC fits in. But there's a warning to the church of Ephesus that is found in Revelation chapter 2 that I want us to turn there. So turn to the back of your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And I think this is, again, God speaking, and he's helping us understand it's not about a bunch of actions that might portray that you're trying to impress God. It's about a relationship with him that he cares most. So listen to what he says, because he's describing the church of Ephesus, highlighting them for their strengths. And I would say, I hope this could be said about LEFC and the churches around us. But look what it says. It says, these are the words of God who holds, or him, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, Ephesus. I know your hard work, church. I know your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary in doing so. Wouldn't that be awesome to have that said about us? But look at what it says in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is like a parent sitting down with their kid and saying, I love you. I love how you're good at these things. But you say that conjunction at the end. But I feel like you don't love me anymore. Imagine God saying that directly to you. That you're one of the members of the church of Ephesus. And he's having a one-on-one -on -one with you. And he says to you, man, you're doing great. You're persevering. You're, you've called out false teachers. You've been speaking truth. You've not deviated from the truth. I love that. But we got a problem. You don't really love me. So, in Scripture, it's consistent. We know that from looking at the love definition in 1 Corinthians 13, it has nothing to do with feelings and everything about the core motive of your heart, the core reason and purpose by which we do everything is where love stems from. And the manifestation of, of love and what it looks like is birthed out of a work of God in us. But what he lowers is the propensity of man to say, I'm going to show you my love by showing you what I do. And there's truth in that. But not when at the core of that is about impression, about boasting, about pride, about you. And not God being the object of your love. 
If the church of Ephesus can be told, after defending the truth, suffering for his name, and not growing weary in it, their ankles and knees are strong. But yet Jesus says, but your heart's not good. It takes the joy out of it. It's the same thing that happens between us and our human relationships. If you're trying to do something that you're, that's for your mom or for a friend, but you're more out of doing it to make an impression and it has nothing to do out of true care for them, it doesn't feel good. My mom, classic example, it, it, there was a whole litany of things that was going on at the time in our relationship. But she told me to do the dishes, and so I went and did them. But I did them with a heart that was very much upset and angry. I did the dishes, and I said, I did them, Mom. But it didn't please her. Because she knew I didn't do it out of love for her. Wanting to do it for her. I did it to get it out of the way and to get her off my back. And it communicated that I really didn't love her. God created us to be like him. He wants the authentic aspects of our heart, not just our righteous acts that might be to try to impress him. He can see through that immediately. So what does it say there in verse 5? Consider how far you have gone Consider how far you've gone and forsaken that you, the love that you had at first. So therefore, do and repeat that which you began with in your journey towards Jesus. It's the same thing that when you found that, when I look back at how I fell in love with my wife, there were things that were done in those beginning days where I was trying to learn who she was, learn how she wanted to be pleased, learn how she, what made her happy, and to be able to do those things wasn't about me. That's how my other relationships were. When I would do those things to impress them. The difference was as I was doing it because I genuinely wanted her to feel loved. Marriages often begin there. But then over time, they quit doing the things they did at first. When I think about my early days of when I began to walk with Jesus... As a high school student and then into my college years. There were things I was doing then that were not often repeated later. But those things were growing my relationship with Jesus and my love for him. Jesus is saying, Tony, remember when you were spending so much time praying in your room with me. Remember when you spent so much time in your word. Remember when just out of spontaneity you did something kind for somebody else. That's what I want from you now. Not how much you can impress me by what you know now about the Bible. Or about what maybe you've done for other people in the, in, over the years. I want you to just enjoy me. Do you hear the invitation from God's heart in this text? When we go back to Galatians 5, which I want us to do right now. Remember where he began in writing this. 
saying, for those of us that are brothers and sisters, this is to the church, for those of you that are in the church, we've been given a freedom in Jesus. But you've used it as a license to indulge yourself. Your mission for your life is about you. I didn't give you freedom. I didn't die for you so that you could just go and please you. I died for you because I loved you and I want you to love me back. I want that to be an intimate relationship. And the fruit of that will then bear fruit in love towards other people. That's why it says, instead of indulging in freedom for our own sake and flesh givings, it's to serve each other in humble love. He gives us how. You're not going to walk out of here and, and hear from me say, this is how you can show great love. Because honestly, it's going to be a list that, that Paul would pick apart and say, yep, there's your list. But do you love him? Do you love him? After all that he's shown you and done for you out of his love for you, how do you reciprocate? Do you love him back? And as a result, do you love other people? As it says, love your neighbor as yourself is at the core and center of all that which is of God. So what does he say? Verse 16 of Galatians 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And as a result, you will then gratify, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires that which is contrary to the spirit and the spirit which is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are to not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you will then have this freedom that's not under the law because you'll be doing that which the law appreciates. Because look what it says in verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you hear that? Against such things there is no law. When we live according to the Spirit, law will not be needed because we are applying that which God intended from the beginning. And it begins at the hardcore truth that love is at the center of what God did for us and it's at the center of how we respond to him. So we begin living a first love life with God by walking closely with the Spirit. The Spirit is his presence. Remember what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven? It's his last kind of words that he said to his disciples when he said, I've got to go so that he can come, the Holy Spirit can come. And he will lead you into all truth. He will be that daily counselor, that, that inner guide that will guide you into all truth. And that truth begins in love. It begins with the fact that the truth is God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. His love created the story that we even binds us all together now. And then Jesus, out of love for the Father and obedience to the Father, and then out of love for the creation, us, 
submitted to the authority of God, even death on a cross, because of love. That same Jesus, because he loves us, left so that the Holy Spirit can come and then we can have that daily presence, that monthly presence, that yearly presence, and let me back up, that every minute presence of God to guide us into all life as he would intend. But more than that, into a relationship with the Father God so we can commune and abide with him deeply. You see, when we walk together with the Spirit, it will create a desire in us to please God, a pleasure in pleasing Him. And it's focused on Him, not about impressing Him. You see, the first love mindset seeks to be creative in expressing love to God. The first love mindset seeks to know what pleases God. That's the journey we are on. We do this rooted in walking with the Spirit of God. And when we walk together with Him, even when things become difficult and storms are raging around you, the presence of God, which might seem fleeting to you in the moment, because you've been walking by His Spirit, there is a love and resolve that says, in spite of what I can't feel right now, in spite of what I can't see right now, I know I love God and he loves me. I'm going to trust that he will get me out of this storm. Because love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. That's the love of God. And we trust in it. So this message is a call to walk by the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God begin to reteach you anew the heart of God, that you can fall in love with His heart again. Or maybe you came in here and you did not have a relationship with God. Then He's teaching you something new, that He loves you, that He wants a relationship with you, and that by having that relationship with Him, He gives you the Spirit by which he then communes with you and takes you into life through the good and the bad. And then you'll discover what it means to have hope, to have trust that will not fade. Let's pray. So Jesus and Father, thank you for your love. For us, even when we didn't love you. Thank you for paying the ultimate price so that we can have hope. Thank you that your love is not flaky. That in spite of us, you continue to persevere. You continue to hope, even when we've given up hope. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for how you handled the church of Ephesus where you spoke the truth to them. But then you re-invited them back into those, those initial days of when they first fell in love with you. Lord, may that happen in our hearts. 
For many of us, we've known you for a long time, and we just need to re-engage the love we had at first. But for others, they need to discover that love for the first time. So I ask that you would do your work now, but I also ask that you would receive from us these words where we show gratitude for all that you've done for us. That is the total epic size type of love that the world has ever seen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand, please? Come on, church, let's declare our love for our Savior this morning.
So after the service today, there will be a baptism that will be out in our lobby in about 15 minutes. You'll get to hear a testimony of a young man who is going off to serve our country, but wants to give acknowledgement to who his king is, Jesus. And so we invite you to be there to be able to participate as witness to what God has done in his life. But I also want to invite you that if you came into this room and you are in need of reacquainting with Jesus, you can sit where you're at and just have a moment of prayer. We want to afford you that and give you that opportunity to re-engage him and say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And to thank him for all the things he's done. Because if we get that right, where it's at the core of our being, that we do all that we do out of love for Jesus, everything else is just a flow of blessing from out of that relationship. If you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people that will be in the encounter room that's to my left uh, in the back there, and they'd be glad to pray with you as well over whatever it is that's a burden upon your life. But I just encourage you that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus or you need to reconnect, don't leave this room without doing so. Because Jesus loves you. And that is the truth. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have an awesome week.